2: This is
3: the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Debbie Hines is going to be with us on the Derek Chauvin trial. We're still waiting for the verdict to come in. The jury is still deliberating. But Debbie will be with us in about 30 minutes, thereabouts. And, you know, we'll see where we're at at that point in time. It is the 11th anniversary of the Deepwater Horizon blowout. And Greg Palace is going to be with us. Was the Deepwater Horizon actually a corporate homicide? But we are going to start our program today with this question, where do guns used to commit shootings in Chicago come from? He <laughs> yes, asked the question in the article. There are no gun shops in Chicago, but the city is inundated with firearms. Police have seized more than 5,600 illegally possessed guns in Chicago this year alone. Getting a gun in the city is like buying a pack of cigarettes at a gas station. Where are they coming from? Well, it turns out, according to the FBI, 60% of all guns seized in Chicago have been purchased out of state, and 19% of them came from Indiana. 95% of the cases, the person found in possession is not the original purchaser. People are buying them in other states and bringing them into Illinois. 21% of guns confiscated by police in Chicago are traced back to gun shops across the border in Indiana, a short drive from the city. The CPD, Chicago Police Department's report, identifies a number of specific gun shops in Indiana and the suburbs of Illinois that supply the largest number of guns that end up being seized by police. The co-owner of one such shop, Midwest Sporting Goods in Lyons, Illinois, told the Globe Post, "There's little the shop can do to prevent straw purchasers. Unfortunately, you can't be a mind reader. There's a whole lot, not a whole lot you can do." And it goes on on from there. So I rest my case. <laughs> Meanwhile, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, in addition to trying to start this new kind of white persons caucus, excuse me, Anglo-Saxon values caucus. Uh, which they've kind of walked back from over the weekend. But, you know, this was their whole shtick was we're going to create this new caucus and it's going to be just all about us and Anglo-Saxon values and all this kind of thing. You know, I think it's fascinating, actually, first of all, that they're actually having to walk back from it. I called it the Ku Klux Caucus KKK. And really what they're calling it is the America First Caucus. And the original America First movement started in the autumn of 1940. Franklin Roosevelt was president. There were a lot of people in America who were saying, we really should get into World War II and help out. There were also a lot of people in America, help out the British specifically, a lot of people in America who were saying, no, 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 no. Roosevelt was doing his lend-lease thing and all this kind of stuff. And so this America First group started with open support for Adolf Hitler. We can negotiate with him. He says, "Yeah, he's a bad guy, but he's you know he's not he's not our problem." And they were also big believers in the Great Replacement theory that Jewish people were paying to bring non-white, non-Anglo-Saxon, uh, you know, British ancestry is the the even though it's not technically what it means, but you know what what they believe it means that this is what was going on. And keep in mind, this was, it was 1939 when Adolf Hitler invaded Poland. So we're talking August of 1940 when the America First, the official America First movement was started in the United States. It had over 800,000 members, including future President Jerry Ford, future U.S. Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart. It was largely funded by the billionaires of the day. We didn't have billionaires back then because we hadn't had Reagan's tax cuts yet. But it was the families who owned Sears Roebuck and the Chicago Tribune. They're very, very wealthy families. Dr. Seuss did a cartoon. Actually, he did several cartoons about America First. One showed two guys, two old guys, kind of Uncle Sam kind of guys, with long beards, and the two beards were kind of all twisted together in the middle between them. One said America First, the other had a swastika on it. Probably his most famous one was a kangaroo, a female kangaroo, uh, that said America First across across the top of the kangaroo, and then in her pouch were two baby kangaroos. One was labeled Nazis, the other was labeled fascists. The leader of the America First Movement, again, this, you know, Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene wanting to start the America First Caucus. The leader of the America's First Movement, Charles Lindbergh, Lucky Lindy, remember him? Well, you may not be old enough to remember him, but you probably read about him. First guy to fly across the Atlantic, solo. He addressed this whole, you know, Jews will not replace us thing in one of his most famous America First speeches in which he said of Jewish Americans, quote, their greatest danger to this country lies in their large ownership and influence in our motion pictures, our press, our radio, and our government, end quote. Right. In the introductory documentation of Green's now put on pause caucus, she said that they would only be interested in voting for or promoting infrastructure, quote, that befits the progeny of European architecture. It really doesn't take a dog to figure out what that whistle means. She did say, according to this document, the Punchbowl News got, that uh, it was all about following in President Trump's footsteps and potentially stepping on some toes and sacrifice sacred cows for the good of the American nation. And what might those sacred cows be? Well, societal trust and political unity are threatened, they said, when foreign citizens are imported en masse into a country. I just find it astonishing how you know all our borders are still closed. We are processing some refugees, but that's a, a, a somewhat different thing. All our borders are still closed, and yet... Republican after Republican, I saw this twice over the weekend, Republicans on TV saying, Joe Biden's open border policy. And then those clips get played down in Central America, and you wonder why people are like, hey, maybe we should head up to America. Liz Cheney, who's, you know, no shrinking violet. (laughs) She tweeted over the weekend about, you know, Boebert and Green's new America First Caucus, she said, she didn't name it, you know, by name, but it was fairly obvious what was going on here. She said, Republicans believe in equal opportunity, freedom, and justice for all. We teach our children the values of tolerance, decency, and moral courage. Racism, nativism, and anti-Semitism are evil. History teaches we all have an obligation to confront and reject such malicious hate. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you could, yes, Liz Cheney is rejecting these folks. But really, if Republicans actually believed in equal opportunity, freedom, and justice for all, maybe they would be interested in letting everybody vote. If they believe in the values of tolerance, decency, and moral courage, maybe they would be talking about doing something about de facto discrimination, segregation in the United States. And so on. But in any case, she's opposed to it, so probably Boebert and Green are going to get a, a few more members. I mean, really, all they have to do is just get the, white, the, the old mailing list for the White Citizens Council or the existing Klan and mail out to those folks. But, you know, really, our most horrific crimes have always been around race in this country, whether it was the genocide of Native Americans, the, arguably the largest genocide in the history of the world, or the slave trade of this country that turned the South into a violent ethno-nationalist police state. And its black residents still live in a state of terror that persists in many ways to this day. And it's not obviously just the South, it has metastasized all over the United States. This is just not healthy stuff. And when it's been tried before in the past where politicians are using cheap rhetorical devices to promote hatred and division, purely for political purposes, it almost always ends in disaster. We have to take a careful look at this and say, no, we're going to reject this. Tom Harman here with you. This is something that just baffles me, and maybe, maybe you can make sense out of this. I think that this is probably a stunt, but it's Lauren Boebert and and Marjorie Taylor Green again. Lauren Boebert, the, the 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 young woman from relatively young, from Colorado, who likes to get her picture taken in front of all kinds of guns, and Marjorie Taylor Green from Georgia, uh, kind of same deal, and there was a piece of legislation called the Transplant Act, which, uh, you know, every three minutes someone in the United States is diagnosed with a blood cancer. 178,000 people in the United States would have been di- were diagnosed with lymphoma or myeloma last year. A person dies from a blood cancer approximately every nine minutes. That's 150 people a day. And And what this program did, you know, fund basically a you know a bank for for these you know for for helping these folks out and trying to fund Doris Matsua a democrat from California who sponsored the renewal bill said in a statement that blood transplants and marrow donations were the only potential for a cure for many people with blood diseases and she said that we must continue to make investments in these programs that have already saved tens of thousands of lives is bipartisan every democrat in the house voted for it Every Republican in the House voted for it, with two exceptions, Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Greene's spokesperson said, quote, Nothing in this bill prevents the funding of aborted fetal tissue by taxpayers. Really? We're going to make a bank of blood transfusions. What does this have to do? What? What? And then uh, Bobert says, this bill added hundreds of millions of dollars to the national debt. Right. So I'm guessing, I mean, it's, a, it's just a few million bucks, right? I'm, I'm guessing that if it had been funded with taxes, then it would have been, oh my God, it's the taxes. We are also finding that uh, leaked chats revealed that uh, National Guardsmen and White Lives Matter organizers are forming a new fascist group. Fascism really is becoming a thing in America. It, the fascist movement is growing. People are openly embracing this. This is uh, the, the host of one of the North Carolina White Lives Matter channels on Telegram. His, uh, his handle is Bolts. And he said the, uh, they are forming a new group dedicated to white power activism in North Carolina. He said the optics for this are gonna be the key. We don't wanna be going out there, we can have our views, we can keep them to ourselves, we invite these people in, we wake them up, we give it to them dose by dose, we get them on that level. But when we're out there in the public, what we don't wanna be doing is calling people the N-word, we don't wanna be talking about the hook-nosed Jew. The key to success here is above-ground fascist movement. They're gonna call us, don't give them the bullets, you know? Right. And then later on June 2030, he said, uh, we need to prepare for war, nothing less. This is, uh, shall we say, troubling. I mean, Patriot Front, a neo-Nazi group that uh, this same guy, Bolt, cited as a model, almost constantly posts photos of its members collecting trash from public areas. The Klan, historically has uh, done these Adopt-the-Highway programs where they go out every month and clean up the highway, pick up the the stuff. In July 2020, Bolts expressed admiration for Adolf Hitler and George Lincoln Rockwell, founder and commander of the American Nazi Party, on Twitter. In another tweet last December that celebrated the Holocaust, he tweeted a Christmas-themed image of a rail line leading to the Auschwitz death camp with a Santa hat placed atop the guard tower. This is all uh, by Jordan Green over at rawstory.com. So now it's, it's just right up front. Yes, we are fascists. Yes, we believe in fascism. Yes, we think that fascism is going to save America. I'm waiting for a politician to come out and say I'm with them. Right? I, I, there was a time in America... You know, in the 1940s, the late 1930s and early 1940s, or, you know, up until we went into the war, up until, you know, December 5th, 41, um, there was a time in America when people were openly fascist. Proudly and openly fascist. Are we going back there again? And if so, how do we respond to that? How, How do average Americans who are repelled by the idea of authoritarian, strongman fascism. You know, we've got basically an oligarch running the country, like what Donald Trump wanted to have if he could steal the election. What do average Americans do about this? You're listening
2: to the Tom Hartman Program.
3: Seems to be one really important starting point is to absolutely go after these people at the ballot box and just overwhelmingly vote them out. Reading today from The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Shearer here on the Tom Harbin University Book Club. This is from The foreword by Shearer. He writes, Though I lived and worked in the Third Reich during the first half of its brief life, watching at first hand Adolf Hitler consolidate his power as dictator of a great but baffling nation and then lead it off to war and conquest, this personal experience would not have led me to attempt to write this book had there not occurred at the end of World War II an event unique in history. This was the capture of most of the confidential archives of the German government and all its branches, including those of the Foreign Office, the Army and Navy, the National Socialist Party, and Heinrich Himmler's secret police. Never before, I believe, has such a vast treasure fallen into the hands of contemporary historians. Hitherto, the archives of a great state, even when it was defeated in war and its government overthrown by revolution, as happened to Germany and Russia in 1918, were preserved by it, and only those documents which served the interests of the subsequent ruling regime were ultimately published. The swift collapse of the Third Reich in the spring of 1945, however, resulted in the surrender not only of a vast bulk of its secret papers, but of other priceless materials such as private diaries, highly secret speeches, conference reports, and correspondence, and even transcripts of telephone conversations of the Nazi leaders tapped by a special office set up by Hermann Goering in the Air Ministry. General Franz Halder, for example, kept a voluminous diary jotted down in Gablesberger, shorthand, not only from day to day, but from hour to hour throughout the day. It's a unique source of concise information for the period between August 14, 1939 and September 24, 1942, when he was chief of the army staff and in daily contact with Hitler and the other leaders of Nazi Germany. It is the most revealing of the German diaries, but there are others of great value, including those of Dr. Joseph Goebbels, the Minister of Propaganda and Close Party Associate of Hitler, and of General Alfred Jodl, Chief of Operations of the High Command of the Armed Forces. And that's the OKW. There are diaries of the OKW itself and of the Naval High Command. Indeed, the 60,000 files of the German Naval Archives, which were captured at Schloss Tombach near Coburg. Contain practically all of the signals, ships' logs, diaries, memoranda, etc., of the German Navy from April 1945, when they were found, all the way back to 1868, when the modern German Navy was founded. The 485 tons of records of the German Foreign Office captured by the U.S. First Army in various castles and mines in the Harz Mountains, just as they were about to be burned on orders from Berlin, cover not only the period of the Third Reich. But go back to the Weimar Republic, to the beginning of the Second Reich of Bismarck. For many years after the war, tons of Nazi documents lay sealed in a large U.S. Army warehouse in Alexandria, Virginia, our government showing no interest in even opening the packing cases to see what documents of historical interest might lie within them. Finally, in 1955, ten years after their capture, thanks to the initiative of the American Historical Association and the generosity of a couple of private foundations, the Alexandria papers were opened, and a pitifully small group of scholars with an inadequate staff and equipment went to work to sift through them and photograph them before the government, which is a great hurry in this matter, returned them to Germany. They proved a rich find. So did such documents as the partial stenographic record of 51 Fuhrer conferences on the daily military situation as seen and discussed in Hitler's headquarters, and the fuller text of the Nazi warlord's table talk with his old party cronies and secretaries during the war. The first of these was rescued from the charred remains of some of Hitler's papers at Berchtesgaden by an intelligence officer of the U.S. 101st Airborne Division, and the second was found among Martin Bormann's papers. And he goes through and he lists some more of this stuff. And he says, I have not read, of course, all of the staggering amount of the documentation. It would be far beyond the power of any single individual. But I've worked my way through a considerable part of it, slowed down as all toilers in this rich vineyard must be by the lack of any suitable indexes. It is quite remarkable how little those of us who were stationed in Germany during the Nazi time, journalists and diplomats, really knew of what was going on behind the facade of the Third Reich. A totalitarian dictatorship, by its very nature, works in great secrecy and knows how to preserve that secrecy from the prying eyes of outsiders. It was easy enough to record and describe the bare, exciting, and often revolting events in the Third Reich an Anschluss with Austria, the surrender of Chamberlain at Munich, the occupation of Czechoslovakia, the attacks on Poland, Scandinavia, the West, the Balkans and Russia, the horrors of the Nazi occupation and the concentration camps and liquidation of the Jews, the fateful decisions secretly made, the intrigues, the treachery, the motives and the aberrations which led up to them, the parts played by the principal actors behind the scenes, the extent of the terror they exercised and their technique of organizing it, all this and much more remained largely hidden from us until the secret German papers turned up. Some may think that it is much too early to try to write a history of the Third Reich, that such a task should be left to a later generation of writers to whom time has given perspective. I found this view especially prevalent in France when I went to do some research there. Nothing more recent than the Napoleonic era, I was told, should be tackled by writers of history. The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Shearer.
4: Welding
0: instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like Forge FX help students master their skills.
5: There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact
0: muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com/slash metaverse impact.
2: You're listening to Tom Hartman. And
3: welcome back. Marilyn in Sun City, West Arizona. Hey Marilyn, what's on your mind today?
1: I am thinking that really we need to throw the Republicans' logic right back at them. And I did that twice this week, and it kind of seemed to work. You know, they've Mm -hmm. been saying for years that we need to decide on our health care premiums between whether we want a second car or to pay for our premiums. And that if we really want our health care insurance, we will find a way to afford it. And I think Mm -hmm. he thinks... Do the same, thing. who needs to decide how much his safety is worth if he wants his second car or if he wants to find the money to pay for the premiums to own a gun.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: I did that with um, a vaccine today with my my girlfriend. She was saying that you know she's not going to get vaccinated, that everybody else around her is getting vaccinated, and so she doesn't really need to. And I said, well, you know that is. Socialism at its finest. And she looked at me like well, it's I had selfishness, three of a
3: anyway. <laughs> yeah.
1: well i said i said bit socialism I said you socialism riding on my hard work to go out and get the vaccine and so mm-hmm. now you do so have to And so she thought about that for a few minutes and then I have another friend because I'm in Arizona and a lot of Canadians are down here getting the vaccine which between you and me I think everybody should be vaccinated. I don't care who you are but there's no Mm -hmm. citizenship question and my girlfriend said yeah you know my Canadian friends they're down here they got vaccinated because they can't get it right now in Canada and there's a whole bunch of stuff they have to go through to get they're just Well, they're Canadian. also living there,
3: too, aren't they, Marilyn? I mean, you're talking about snowbirds, people who come down for the for the winter.
1: Uh, uh, some of them come down for the winter. Some of them in this case only come down for a couple of months. But the point that I told her is I said, gee, you know, she, but then when it came to Mexicans, it was like, no, we don't want all those illegals coming up and taking our vaccines. And I said, well, what do you think the Canadians are? Well, well, <laughs> well, they're not illegals. Well, they're not anything.
3: Yeah. Well, they're white people.
1: What, hap- what, what happened to I mean, your America first?
3: Yeah, they're white people, Marilyn. I mean, you know, let's let's just get right down to it. You know, there's 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 a lot of talking in code here, and uh, "illegals" is a phrase that is almost exclusively applied to non-white people, and yet one right. of the one of the largest cohorts of people who are in the United States without legal process are europeans or particularly irish but you know it's
1: i think we just need to throw their own crazy legend back at them
3: yeah it sounds like a good start it sounds like a real good start but i find that fascinating that you've got canadians coming down to arizona you know presumably canadians who have some kind of a footprint in arizona but coming down to get vaccines there's no
1: citizenship question
3: yeah, yeah. And I'm guessing, the, well, and, and in, a, in a way, that's a good thing. I mean, in public health, if the person next to you is sick and can make you sick, you really don't care what their citizenship is. You want them to be vaccinated. I agree. So, I agree. yeah, yeah. Uh, Marilyn, thank you for the call. It's always nice to hear from you. And thanks for the uh, thanks for listening to us there in Sun City, West Arizona. We'll be back with Debbie Hines, our legal analyst, who's going to bring us up to date on what's going on in the Chauvin trial. Stick around. Welcome back. Let's check in with Debbie Hines, our legal analyst and former trial lawyer, former assistant attorney general for the state of Maryland and general expert on all things legal. I am Debbie Hines.com, her website and her Twitter handle. Debbie, welcome back. So uh, the jury is still out. What Thank does you. that mean to you?
6: You know, Tom, um, I heard all of my other colleagues talk about what that means. There's really no way to tell how long a jury's going to be out on this particular case, what the jury is doing, what's taking them so long. You know, it doesn't have the consistency that people are saying. Even when I hear other attorneys say, oh, a fast verdict means that it's a guilty verdict. Well, that certainly wasn't the case with the L.J. Simpson case. That was the quickest verdict I ever heard. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't really read the tea leaves in that, but the thing that I think that I wanted to share with your listeners, because I think it's a thing that people get confused with, because they're thinking, "My God, what could be taking them so long?" But they don't have to, They're not deciding what we sitting at home are deciding whether Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd. They have to decide when the elements of the charges that the judge read to them. So, meaning under, and they have to do it for for basically three charges. So, meaning that for the charge of second degree, they have to find that Chauvin's actions that Chauvin committed and. A- An assault in the third degree that was a felony. That's what makes it be a second degree murder charge. And in the instance of third degree, they have to find that it was with, you know, reckless disregard that he just deprived Mr. Floyd of his life and manslaughter is negligence, culpable negligence. So they have to really go through the the simple, as, did he kill him? It's a matter of, well, how did he kill him? Did he do it by second degree? Did he do it by third degree? Was it done by, you know, manslaughter? And I actually thought the jury would probably for three days. I didn't think it would be a fast turnaround, just basically because of all the elements that the judge read to them and the jury instructions that they have to methodically go through and determine those elements. I still have faith so far in the jury because I feel elevated by the fact that it is six jurors of color. There are four black jurors and there are two jurors that are people of color. And so it's basically split six and six, and so I don't feel, I just don't feel that the black jurors and the people of color are going to come back with the not guilty. I mean, I could be surprised, but I don't feel that would happen. I think that the more likely thing that could happen is a compromise verdict. But again, I always go back to 12 jurors, 12 people who don't know each other, never saw each other before. They sat in this courtroom. Complete strangers have to decide for three individual charges, and that could take more than a moment.
3: So if they come back with, just to game out all three possibilities, they, they come back with not guilty on all counts, they come back with guilty on all counts, or they come back with a hung jury, what happens in each one of those three cases?
6: Well, see, there's more options. The options are not that limited. They can come back with not guilty on second degree, not guilty on third degree, guilty on manslaughter. They can come back right. with not guilty on. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of variations involved. And that's, but I guess I, what, I, I, what, what I'm
3: asking is how appealable it. are these things?
6: Well, the state doesn't have the right to appeal. It's only the defendant that has the right to appeal, and the appellate court only looks to see if the grounds that you're raising on appeal, if you're found guilty, did they in effect cause the, they have to be substantial error, that they caused the jury to decide in that way. We're raising right. things like uh, Maxine Waters, which is, they could bring that, on appeal; they would have to just, cause caused the jury to render a guilty verdict because if it's just something that's a little bit of a problem, it's really no no foul that the legal system won't appeal.
3: Do you think the failure of the judge to sequester the jury when the uh, defense had asked for it will be the basis of an appeal, or could be? No, it be a strong basis. No, because
6: the. Ob- no. No, well the other he can make it be the basis of appeal because you could say anything and your argument for the appeal, the points that you're raising. But the the other standard for appeal the judge has certain discretion. And so if the judge that's the word that we use, if the judge has a discretion to do something, then there's no harm there unless you can say that that discretionary act that the judge did caused it because it was error. The, 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 the bottom line, when, when you're saying a judge did something wrong, you have to show that it was an it was egregious error. Mm-hmm. It that way. It mm-hmm. has to be, you have to show that it was egregious error. It gets to be the higher standard for the defendant on appeal.
3: I see. I see. Interesting. Well, I was hoping that they would come back in nine minutes and 26 seconds. (laughs) You know, obviously they're not. Me too, Tom.
5: Me too.
3: Uh, Debbie Hines, our our friend, trial lawyer, legal political commentator, former prosecutor, former assistant attorney general of Maryland. I am Debbie Hines, D-E-B-B-I-E-H-I-N-E-S dot com. And I am Debbie Hines on Twitter. Debbie, thank you so much for dropping by every day. I really appreciate it. Good talking with you. Dijon in Beverly Hills hey Dijon what's up
4: hey Tom just want to say I enjoy your program first time calling in I just want to talk about the issue of police violence and brutality I think one of the problems we have a lot of racists are in the police department and it's something we need to you know confront you know for a Mm -hmm. lot of African Americans we feel like we're in in semi-slavery you know we're you know jim crow is in the police department where you constantly you know for, take for instance a traffic stop should not lead to someone being killed like the young man that happened in um you know in brooklyn center yeah you know those things are mm-hmm. you know for black people we feel like we actually live in a full police state and we just you know we need something to be done about it i'm
3: with uh, you i believe we need to reconsider the purpose of our policing, from top to bottom, the way that we execute our policing, we need to break out a number of functions that police are asked to do that really, you know, aren't appropriate for police to be doing. And you know, for, if, for example, here in, in Portland, they just appropriated, as I recall, it was six million dollars to deal with the gun violence problem that we've got, which is not unique to Portland. It's happening in cities all over America, and. None of that is going to the police department. You know, it's go, it's going to all these other support services to prevent gun violence in the first place.
4: You know, yeah, uh, you thing. know working... Thing, go ahead. Another thing, Tom, about the Second Amendment, people do not realize it was not part of the original Constitution. It was put in there to protect the slave owners. And white supremacists, yeah. neo-Nazis, and other things, they use the so-called Second Amendment to continue perpetrating violence in this country. And, you know, you bring something that he talks about the Republican Party. The Republican Party talks about rights and everything, but whose rights are they promoting? Just a certain group of people? It, 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 you know, it's like they're dis- they destroying this country. And I'm afraid it's like we are heading back to the 1960s all over again. You know, one of my grown aunts, she just turned 91 years old a couple of days ago, And I was having a conversation with her. And you know what she said to me, Tom? She said, it feels like the country is slipping back to the 1950s and 60s. And it's true. How? Well, she felt like we are taking one step forward in changing the country it is. But she feel like it's going back where black people feel like they are under siege once again you know, where you see all these Republicans. I, I don't think there was ever
3: a time when black people weren't under siege, Dijon. Thank uh, you. Respectfully, Thank you. Thank not, you. not speaking Thank as you. one. But Thank. I think a better metaphor, I, you know, I get your, you know, one step forward, two steps back. I think it's the other way around. I think it's two steps forward, one step back. Whenever you start you. making progress you're going to encounter resistance and that's gonna back you up a little bit. And that's what you're we're right. seeing right. right now. And we've been seeing this all along, but to mangle uh, Martin Luther King's you know, moral arc quote, it does bend slowly, but it is bending toward justice. And we are getting yes. better as a country. And we have been year after year after year. And yes, there've been a lot of setbacks. But even rhetorically, I mean, the, the kind of, you know, can you imagine George Wallace was out there in the 60 and I think it was a 68 election saying segregation now, segregation forever. And he friends. won the state yeah. of Michigan as the Democratic nominee. I mean, that would never happen today. You're Although, right, you know, we're getting we're getting people who hey, look are at
4: Trump. Look <laughs> at Trump. Look at Trump. I
3: mean. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say we're we're getting people who are essentially saying the same thing. They're just doing it more subtly. Dijon, exactly. thank you. Thank you for the call. see here Mike in Simi Valley California you are on the air what's up thanks hey, for watching hey, free Tom,
2: oh, just a little bit of a red and, and I appreciate your optimism but logic and the reason has become obsolete stupidity has taken over in some quarters, Fain, where are you you know what I mean
3: Yeah. Well, Thomas Um, Paine had his own challenges. I mean, after he published The Age of Reason, his book uh, promoting atheism, he was banned from public society. When he died, only seven people showed up for his funeral. He he was an outcast,
2: a pariah. However, he was still a thinker. Some of these Republicans don't think. I don't know what it is. My question is, who can cleverly speak to the media or, for that matter, the country other than you? I mean, they need to be cleverly insulted. And I think if if the Dems stay quiet, I think we might be in trouble. But I do appreciate your optimism.
3: Well, I don't think the Dems are staying quiet, Mike. I think they're speaking out. And, and increasingly, the media is actually starting to pay attention to them. I'm, I'm impressed by how frequently we're seeing Bernie Sanders on TV, you know, okay. and, and and Elizabeth Warren and other progressives. I mean, you know, the, the the programs that historically were just, you know, if it's Sunday, it's meet the Republicans. You know, uh, they're actually starting to put progressives on rather than just corporate Democrats. I, I'm I, and I think it's because they're experiencing the same thing that Joe Biden is. Joe Biden is a politician. His entire life, he's lifted his finger and said, which way is the wind blowing? That's not a bad thing in and of itself. If you know, because you want your politicians to actually be part of the, the general gestalt, you want them to be promoting public policies that are popular. And what's popular now, people have figured out that the whole Reagan thing was a lie they figured out that the whole little government uh, you know big big government is a terrible thing we have to shrink government that that's a lie they figured out that you need government during times of crisis we've been through series of crises now in the last couple of years from floods to to hurricanes to to wildfires to pandemics and, and Joe, Joe Biden is putting his finger to the air and going, huh, people want more Social Security. People want unionization. People yeah. want jobs. <laughs> people want <laughs> infrastructure. And he's going to give it to us. God bless him. This is exactly what we want. I'm, I'm actually very hopeful, Mike. But the, the one thing that concerns me is that is that these fascists within the Republican Party will succeed where Trump failed at ending our democracy, at further gerrymandering situations, at making it harder for people to vote. I don't think they're gonna succeed over the long term. I think 20 years from now, we'll look back on this period as a huge transitional time in America. But over the next couple of years, I'm very concerned.
2: I think that Steve Scalise, I mean, when he's talking about uh, Maxine Waters, I mean, that's what I mean. I mean, people hear that, and they start to believe it. And I hope, I mean, believe me, listen I'm with you a thousand percent, but how can we get somebody else to, like, I would love to see a debate between Steve Scalise or somebody that's a a Democrat that could stand up to him and just say, you know, you're not with it, period, you know. Anyway, that's all I want to say. Well, somebody, you know,
3: somebody needs to point out that when Steve Scalise was running for Congress in Louisiana. Louisiana, you know, he's now the number two Republican in the House, but he's the congressman from Louisiana, that he claimed that he was David Duke without the baggage. That was his selling point. I know, I know. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is our old buddy Greg Pallast. Today is the anniversary of the Deepwater Horizon corporate homicide. Greg, your thoughts on this. Tell us. Tell, first of all, I know you did some serious investigative work on this. Give us the background. It's been a few years.
7: Yeah, it's been a few years, but again, the, the real story hasn't come out in America. For British television and European television, I was sent to investigate. And what I found is that, you know, we got this wonderful uh, corporate fairy tale that on April 20th, a tragic accident that no one could have seen blew up. There was a blowout on a BP rig in the Gulf of Mexico slime six hundred miles of coastline and incinerated literally vaporized eleven men on that rig terrible accident who could have figured on it except that I got a message from the Caspian Sea uh, off of the uh, uh, off of Baku in, in azerbaijan i 've never heard of a azerbaijan it 's an oil uh, it's an oil state. You'll find out when the 101st Airborne arrives there. But uh, as we, that's, how we, that's how Americans learn geography, right, by invading oil states. But <laughs> I flew to Azerbaijan because I got an uh, insider saying that they had witnessed the blowout of a BP rig, and, but it wasn't in the Gulf. There was another blowout in the Caspian Sea 17 months, a year and a half before the Gulf spill. You didn't see it in any news reports. It was completely buried and covered up by the dictatorship of Azerbaijan, the what I call the uh, Islamic Republic of BP. No, wait a British second, petroleum, yes. And so it was the same exact blowout. And here's the thing, Tom. Uh, what, what, so BP, yeah. Go ahead. So, go ahead. Uh, you got a question? But uh, let me just finish. So there was this uh, BP. Yeah, my, my apologies, blowout.
3: Greg. There's about a there's a, 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 a about a three or four seconds. And, uh, second to to delay okay, that we have here my all understanding right. uh, my recollection at the time uh, there was all these news stories saying uh who could have imagined who how could this have happened nobody it must be some weird thing you know the the cement in the pipes or so you you know uh this has never happened before bloody, bloody. you're saying never all of that is a lie
7: by the way it's not just a lie it was perjury before the United States Congress. So, again, a year and a half before the BP blowout in the Gulf, BP had an identical blowout in the Caspian Sea, and they covered it up. They only told their partners Chevron and Exxon, and, uh, and I actually flew to Azerbaijan to get this confirmed. I was, I was put under arrest by a combination of BP's private police force and the secret police there. But then I got a confirmation of the blowout from a guy working with The Guardian who is now named Chelsea Manning. He got the inside State Department cable saying that the Bush State Department under Condoleezza Rice knew about this as did Chevron. And by the way you may take note that there is a tanker, super tanker called the Condoleezza named after Chevron's former board member who is then Secretary of State. They completely covered it up. They didn't which is required by law tell the US Interior Department which told BP do not drill in that area of the gulf it's unstable so BP Chevron and Exxon who knew about the blow up in the gulf the disaster in excuse me in the Caspian Sea went before Congress and under oath said we haven't had a problem in deep water drilling for 50 years even though they were completely aware including the Bush administration of the blowout in the Caspian. Now, if they had known about that, there's no way that Interior would have allowed them to drill or allowed them to use the methods, This uh, what was called the quick-dry cement method used in the Caspian Sea, which, which was the immediate cause of the blowout. Interestingly, Chevron and Exxon secretly and quietly stopped using the quick-dry method in deep water in the Gulf. BP continued. Because it was cheaper. Drying cement quickly is a heck of a lot cheaper than letting it dry slowly. It led to the death of 11 men. 600 miles of shoreline destroyed. And by the way, just a couple, a few weeks ago, you and I talked about the Exxon Valdez where I was uh, an investigator on that case. And in that case they had, you know, it's not rocket science to stop an oil spill. You just put rubber around the the rig or the vessel and you suck it out with the oil out with a skimmer ship. They didn't have it around the Exxon Valdez, even though they promised. The same darn thing happened in the Gulf, Tom. BP promised to have all this rubber boom and these skimmer ships. They were supposed to have this controlled and uh, get the equipment out there in four hours. They took four days. They took four days. So they knew about, they lied to Congress. Chevron, BP, Exxon all lied to Congress saying it was safe to drill in the Gulf. Interior was overruled. They did the drilling using an unsafe method. Eleven people died. In how many people died from the cancers that, from the hydrocarbons that hit the beach? You had people out there in flip-flops picking up oil. When I was in Alaska, you didn't do that unless you had on hazmat suits. It was horrendous. It's horrendous what happened. This is corporate homicide. It's not an accident. Yeah. You know, and, and the Bush administration Greg, is knew. anybody going to be held to, to account for this?
3: Has anybody been held to account for this?
7: Well, I will say that the guy that lied to Congress was, in fact, uh, charged with uh, fraud and perjury uh, from BP. And, of course, you know, skipped out. They said, you know, they, they had excuses. Uh, you know, of loopholes the law on the best lawyers. Uh, no one was held accountable. BP basically, you have to understand it costs billions to run these oil containment operations around the world. It's just a lot cheaper to pay off widows, pay off cleanup workers who in the Gulf are getting minimum wage, and um, without having to spend the billions to prevent the killings and disaster in the first place. And that's the problem. We still have this problem today, even after the Deepwater Horizon. More promises from the oil companies. Where is the equipment? We're not prepared for another for another disaster. Not at all.
3: Are, are you seeing any evidence that John Kerry, you know, the energy czar now, or or the the, the climate change climate czar, change. I guess, uh, or other members of the Biden administration are? taking this kind of stuff seriously and are intending to hold, obviously Trump was not going to hold anybody accountable, uh, you know, especially as long as they were pouring campaign money into his coffers. Um, What about the Biden administration?
7: Well, I'm very concerned, especially about drilling in the Arctic Ocean. But I think that the Biden administration is just trying to say, we're done with oil. So we don't need to open up the, the Arctic um, to drilling, where that you can't control an oil spill. You know, Shell Oil lost two rigs up there in the Arctic already, and they weren't even, thank God, they weren't drilling. Uh, you know, but, uh, that's a very dangerous spot to drill. The Gulf is still a danger. We still have a disaster in the Gulf. But, you know, there was a, a game by BP that nature is like some type of toilet that you just that flushes itself out. I can tell you right now, when I was on the beaches in the Gulf of Mexico, you had um, cleanup workers who were told, don't go more than a quarter inch below the surface of the sand. Just pick up the crap on the top so that the cameras don't see the oil that's about oozing about eight inches below the surface. So while the camera crews are concentrating these nice clean beaches, there's literally chunks of oil that are big as sofas floating nearby. I think Biden and Kerry in a way have the right idea. You can't control these oil companies, so you move beyond oil. It's time to, to not be a prisoner of these oil companies. And don't forget it's political capture too. It's not just it's political pollution. In the case of the United States Uh, The bribery with small stuff, Um, you know, a a little uh, uh, sexual favors plus Super Bowl tickets got the regulators off BP's case. In Azerbaijan, in order to cover up the uh, crimes there, it was $30 million checks to the dictatorship
3: absolutely amazing. The great Greg Pallast, investigative journalist, author, his latest How Trump Stole 2020, gregpallast.com, greg underscore Pallast over on Twitter. Greg, thanks so much for dropping by. It's always great having you with us. Thank you.
7: Best time. Bye.
3: Thank you. Back at you. We'll be back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today for the Tom Hartman Book Club is Notes on a Nervous Planet by Matt Haig. This is from the chapter, well, it starts with the chapter A Life Edit on page four. I was scared. I couldn't not be. Being scared is what anxiety is all about. The bouts are coming closer and closer. I was worried where I was heading. It seemed there was no upper limit to despair. I tried to distract myself out of it. However, I knew from past experience alcohol was off limits, so I did the thing that had helped before to climb out of a hole, the thing I forget to do in my day-to-day life. I was careful about what I ate. I did yoga. I tried to meditate. I lay on the floor and placed my hand on my stomach and inhaled deeply, in, out, in, out, and noticed the stuttery rhythm of my breath. But everything was difficult. Even choosing what to wear in the morning made me cry. It didn't matter that I had felt like this before. A sore throat doesn't become less sore simply because you've felt it before. I tried to read, but found it hard to concentrate. I listened to podcasts. I watched new Netflix shows. I went on social media. I tried to get on top of my work by replying to all my emails. I woke up and clasped my phone and prayed that whatever I could find there would take me out of myself. But, spoiler alert, it didn't work. I began to feel worse, and many of the distractions were doing nothing but driving me further to distraction, In T.S. Eliot's phrase from his four quartets, I was distracted from distraction by distraction. I would stare at an unanswered email with a feeling of dread and not be able to answer it. Then on Twitter, my go-to digital distraction of choice, I noticed my anxiety intensify. Even just passively scrolling my timeline felt like an exposure of a wound. I read news websites and other distractions, and my mind couldn't take it. The knowledge of so much suffering in the world didn't help put my pain in perspective. It just made me feel powerless and pathetic that my invisible woes were so paralyzing when there were so many visible woes in the world. My despair intensified, so I decided to do something. I disconnected. I chose not to look at social media for a few days. I put an auto-response on my emails too. I stopped watching or reading the news. I didn't watch TV. I didn't watch any music videos, even magazines I avoided. During my initial breakdown years before, the bright imagery of magazines always used to linger and clog my mind with feverish racing images as I tried to sleep. I left my phone downstairs when I went to bed. I tried to get outside more. My bedside table was cluttered with a chaos of wires and technology and books I wasn't really reading. So I tidied up and took them away, too. In the house, I tried to lie in darkness as much as possible, the way you might deal with a migraine. I had always, since I was first suicidally ill in my 20s, understood that getting better involved a kind of life edit, a taking away. As the minimalist advocate Fumio Sasaki put it, there's a happiness in having less. In the early days of my first experience of panic, the only things I had taken away were booze and cigarettes and strong coffees. Now, though, years later, I realized that a more general overload was the problem, a life overload, and certainly a technology overload. The only real technology I interacted with during this present recovery, aside from the car and the cooker, were yoga videos on YouTube, which I watched with the brightness turned low. The anxiety didn't miraculously disappear. Of course not. Unlike my smartphone, there is no slide-to-power-off function for anxiety but I stopped feeling worse. I plateaued, and after a few days, things began to calm. The familiar path of recovery arrived sooner rather than later, and abstaining from stimulants, not just alcohol and caffeine, but these other things, was part of the process. I began, in short, to feel free again. Most people know the modern world can have physical effects, that despite advances, aspects of modern life are dangerous for our bodies. Car accidents, smoking, air pollution, a sofa-dwelling lifestyle, Take out pizza, radiation, that fourth glass of Merlot. Even being at a laptop can pose physical dangers. Sitting down all day, getting an RSI. Once I was even told by an optician that my eye infection and blocked tear ducts were caused by staring at the screen. We blink less, apparently, when working on a computer. So as physical health and mental health are intertwined, couldn't the same be said about the modern world and our mental states? couldn't aspects of how we live in the modern world be responsible for how we feel in the modern world? Not just in terms of the stuff of modern life, but its values, too. The values that cause us to want more than we have. To worship, work above play. To compare the worst bits of ourselves with the best bits of other people. To feel like we always lack something. And as I grew better, day by day, I began to have an idea about a book. This book right here. I've already written about my mental health and reasons to stay alive, but the question now was not why should I stay alive. The question this time was a broader one. How can we live in a mad world without ourselves going mad? As I began researching, I quickly found some attention grabbing headlines for an attention grabbing age. Of course, news is almost always designed to stress us out. If it was designed to keep us calm, it wouldn't be news. It would be yoga or a puppy. So there's an irony about news companies reporting on anxiety while also making us feel anxious. Anyway, here are some of the headlines. Stress and social media fuel mental health crisis among girls from The Guardian. Chronic loneliness is a modern day epidemic from Forbes. Facebook may make you miserable, says Facebook Sky News. Steep rise in self-harm among teenagers from the BBC. As I said, it's ironic that reading the news about how things are making us anxious and depressed actually can make us anxious. And that tells us as much as the headlines themselves. Notes on a Nervous Planet by Matt Haig. Let's see here. Steve in Gainesville says you disagree with me, Steve. So you go to the front of the line. What's your uh, disagreement? Uh,
5: Tom, I want to ask you a question. Being of sound mind, sound body. I wonder if a criminal is in the eye of a police officer and that police officer feels threatened. that if that person is on probation or has maybe a warrant out for their arrest and that person tries to flee or hurt the officer what would you have that officer do
3: uh steve why the hypothetical what's the point you're trying to make
5: well you go on and on about Everybody that is either conservative or Republican is bad and we have all these notions about us that we're anti, that we're racist and we're um, anti-freedom and and we want to rewrite history and all this stuff.
3: Steve, your phone is breaking up. What's, What's the point you're trying to make?
5: I'm saying there's, there's two sides to every story, and you will only give one side.
3: Okay, so give the other side, Steve. What, what's, what am I missing here?
5: Okay, if a criminal shoots a police officer, why shouldn't they be given probation or given um, bail? Why, why should we just turn them free again?
3: I would not think that a criminal who has shot a police officer should be turned free. I don't think anybody who shoots anybody should be turned free. Steve, you're trying to create a cartoon character here, a straw man, and nobody is going to take that seriously, Steve. Steve, your phone has just totally croaked. I'm sorry. Uh, You know, I'd, I'd be glad to have a conversation with you sometime, but we've got to be able to hear each other. Michelle in Denver. Hey, Michelle, what's up?
6: So first of all, that guy, the
0: black officer, got convicted so why is the black officer getting convicted any black officer that would do this would face wait a second what are you talking none, about michelle they don't are you are you talking what, did, 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 uh, uh, what the caller just ahead. said about officers being able to shoot criminals the black officer that did this to a white woman was convicted so why is hmm. he only being convicted and nobody else is secondly what comes next after this? Because we've been fighting this battle for over 200 years now, and every time we take five steps forward, it's ten steps back. Uh, we finally got a black president. So we got white lash. We got Warnock and Ossoff in there. We got white lash. So, to me, I don't think this is going to solve much. I want. Chauvin to be convicted, but it's just going to piss the KKK and white supremacy groups off. And they're going to work day and night to reverse this decision, and then they're going to take it out on us. And anybody else that's supporting Black Lives Matter or black people in general are going to pay the cost, too. So, to me, what needs to happen is an honest conversation about who founded this country, and it was not by white people. They came over on a boat just like my ancestors did. They don't own rights to this country. They took it from the Indians and enslaved black people to work it. So if black people are 400 and some years tired, sick and tired of having to fight this battle and break a window that they helped build they helped build the foundation of that money these people have, then I'm not going to be pissed off. What's going to happen if he does not get convicted is going to be just that. It's going to be 10 times worse than Rodney King. Because rather than this country facing facts and telling these dumb people who are racist as hell off a belief, a Civil War belief that's inherently incorrect— Instead of telling them the truth, they keep lying to them and lying to them, and we keep letting it happen. So we need to start from the basics, (laughs) literally start from the basics, because they didn't found this country. The Indians founded America. They were here before us. And you, you you, took everything from them. You pillaged them just like you're pillaging black people. And if the black officer can be convicted of shooting a white woman, then a white officer needs to be convicted of shooting a black man who is unarmed and innocent and not proven guilty in a court of law. Not a criminal.
3: Amen. Michelle, thank you. Uh, thank you. Very well said. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Seriously, it's the demos in democracy. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around you. Huh? We'll see you tomorrow.
2: You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.